Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Joining me today on Trending is Dr. John Bruchowski. He's the author of the book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. For a time in his career, many years ago, he performed abortions, had a massive conversion, and a deep return to his Catholic faith. And he runs some of the largest pro-life, full OBGYN medical clinics for women in the nation. He has shared his testimony here before, going from the horror of abortion and his involvement to the incredible pro-life work that he has been doing for many years now. I highly recommend his book. It's called Two Patients. It really emphasizes the medical perspective, along with his personal story, that we never have to put one patient against the other. We never have to vet a mother against a child, a child against the mother, or focus on one life over the other. And it's such an important message with great confusion today over uh, questions about abortion where people tend to justify abortion because of uh, health reasons that they claim it's necessary. But he has really disproven that argument countless times here on Trending. We'll post links to the episodes where he's joined us before. Today we're going to be talking about what's happening on the ground. He is really a frontline doctor when it comes to the crisis surrounding abortion and helping to treat women who otherwise may have aborted their children. Dr. Bruchelski, I'd like to talk to you today about what you're seeing on the ground with regard to chemical abortion. There's a lot of debate in the legal systems right now. We very well may see this before the Supreme Court uh, over whether or not chemical abortion will continue to be allowed to be used after in 2000, the FDA wrongfully allowed for its use to the detriment of countless women, of which data is very limited because we're not required to report on abortions, uh, the data that should be there telling us what's happening to women. But what are you seeing in your practice when it comes to RU486 chemical abortion, the most common type of abortion today, making up more than half of all abortions? Well, as you can, you know, as you know, and once again, Timory, it's wonderful to be with you. And thank you for having your finger on the pulse uh, of the heart of this movement. Um, what we're seeing um, on the ground is uh, the first part is that women are beginning to, because of the increased access to chemical abortions, we're beginning to see um, women, moms, coming face to face, gaze to bloody mess uh, with what they're doing. And uh, mothers know that when they go seek an abortion, an elective abortion, they know that the outcome is meant to be a dead baby. We, they say the pregnancy will be over, but the reality is they know that it, the outcome for a successful abortion is a dead fetus, a dead baby, their dead baby. And it's really a challenge to cognitively and psychologically and spiritually and hormonally pull back. So that's the mm. first piece. We're beginning to see 
the actual gaze of the mother looking on her floor, looking in the toilet, looking in her bed, coming face to face with the products of conception that are a sack, Mm. the child in the sack sometimes, Mm -hmm. the clots that look like liver, large blood clots, cramping. They're not being prepared because in the beginning of abortion, oh, it's always going to be fine. Don't worry. There's no problem with it. There's this lack of truth. Hmm. And now we're beginning to see it firsthand. Second issue is that mifepristone is an endocrine disruptor. Where else are we hearing the same word? Mm-hmm. Well, there are endocrine disruptors in the process of transitioning old and young people from one sex to another. Endocrine disruptors is what we're finding in our water supplies that are increasing the risk, Mm -hmm. well, infertility. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I have a testicular tumor that gave me a positive pregnancy test that was probably associated with oral contraceptives being urinated into the Hudson River water supply that then fed our our well water at our home. And Mm -hmm. so what's happening is, so one was, just to be clear, before we keep going, Dr. Bruchowski, you weren't pregnant, but can you explain for just a moment what was going on for those who might be a little baffled by that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, you, I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep the show, you know, the show cutting edge here. Um, <laughs> I had a testicular tumor called an embrinal cell, and the embrinal cell is made up of many types of tissues, and one of the tissues is the ovarian, is the tissue that produces beta HCG, the pregnancy hormone test. Mm. And I had a positive beta HCG that then had to be cleared through my liver, which gave me morning sickness. So there are, and there's an increase, just like we're finding in fishing streams yes. all across the East Coast. Mm. It used to be acid rain. Well, now we're finding um, hormones. male hormones. fish becoming female fish. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. the fertility rates are dropping. Fishing populations are lowering. And it's being consistently coinciding with areas of a large patient population or large population of women urinating and also Mm -hmm. putting at one of many chemicals is uh, the birth control pill. So one is that the endocrine disruptor of mifepristone works at the level of your progesterone in your body. Well, what happens when you have a young woman, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 20, up to 25, where her ovarian access, her ovarian system, the area that makes eggs once a month for her menstruation, well, you're going to start putting mifepristone back into her body And it's going to continue there for a while. And now we're realizing that women who are having chemical abortions are now urinating and defecating the same chemical and all of its Mm. secondary byproducts into a water system where we're now re-ingesting it. Mm. And so there are many issues. Mm -hmm. Correct. And then the third piece is the lie that, well, if you do have a, an abortion at home with the chemicals, 
just remember that if you choose not to tell the doctor, it'll be fine to go to the emergency room and just tell them that you have had a miscarriage. Hmm. So on one end, they're trying to conflate abortion and miscarriage, which is two totally different processes. Right. Even though there are some similarities, the intent, the medication, the surgery, two totally different separate issues. But now we're teaching women to lie. Mm-hmm. But we're, their body language, when they come in, do you think we're idiots? Mm-hmm. People who work mm-hmm. in the emergency room? You can look and you can hear it in their voice. You can see their body language. And yet they're telling you to lie about your health care. Why is that? Mm. Because I'm convinced that the data shows that it's much more risky, 500% increase in ER visits over the last several years because of this chemical abortion procedure. It's absolutely crazy to think that we're going to show them a bloody mess and show them what this looks like in real time. Mm-hmm. Number two, we're giving them endocrine blockers. Right. And then thirdly, we're telling them to lie. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there in that process that says this is good medicine. Mm-hmm. And sadly, we're going to have our patients coming back and telling us this. And that's what we're beginning to see right now. Mm. It was so heartbreaking when you and I spoke recently, uh, you were sharing mm. with me that you're having women call into your pro-life OBGYN clinic saying, is this normal as they're coming face to face with their dead child with the bloody mess that you described just a moment ago. But I appreciate that you're touching on the fact that mifepristone is a massive chemical nuclear bomb for a woman's body. And not only is it literally destroying and damaging her body, but just like we've seen hormonal birth control in water, it's also sloughing off into the water as well. You mentioned the impact that it's now leading to hermaphrodite fish, uh, among other things, even fertility uh, problems with fish um, among multiple generations down. I mean, I have have had polycystic ovarian syndrome and Hashimoto's disease. You know, we can talk about the way hormones, it's all about hormones, right? Endocrine disruptors. Everyone has polycystic ovarian syndrome exactly right and we are spending so much time and so much of our conversation protecting folks Uh, what about the aluminum what about the copper what about all the other chemicals that we're ingesting in our food Mm -hmm. and now we're going to turn around and we've already committed at least 50 percent of our abortions depending on which state you're 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 you know you're in to this Via process? chemical abortion, right? right. Oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we're doing it all in the name of, um, you know, reproductive health and justice. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a real, it's, it's breaking our, well, it's mm. breaking our hearts as physicians and caregivers and providers. But I also think that it's going to take its toll on a patient population that assumes that abortion is just the right backup to contraception and that it's something that we deserve and it's, you know, it's legal in certain states and Mm -hmm. it's becoming a destination location. Mm -hmm. You know, can you, you know, once again, uh, the the state just south of us, uh, Timory, North Carolina, um, just came up and overrode the governor's veto uh, about a, you know, a a 12-week limit on abortions above 12 weeks. 
it's now um, it, it's now illegal. Well, most abortions, 95 percent occur before that time. However, the folks, the Democrats here in our state of Virginia are coming up and saying we must become an abortion destination to help our neighbor to the south. And here we have a we have a Republican House, mm-hmm. a Democrat Senate and a Republican governor. And you're and in the state of Virginia, that, for those who don't know. Yes, we are in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that after Roe, everything's moved to the states mm-hmm. and pregnancy centers and abortion clinics are trying to get people to come in earlier to right. kind of be seen earlier in the pregnancy process. However, we're not fear, we're not placing fear in them. Fear is not them. of the Lord and it's right. not love. We meet people where they are. We don't mm-hmm. want to plant oh my god, you know, this is going to be terrible for you and you're going to you you're going to have you're going to be dying and you can't have ectopic care and you can't have miscarriage care and you can't oh they're going to let you die. It's not the truth. Are you kidding me? It's mm-hmm. love versus fear. And fear is pow- is a powerful tool, but it's only a powerful tool of those who are trying to convince you to do something that goes against your heart. And I'm really convinced after caring for patients that ideologues, political ideologues, are few and far between. Women don't just get pregnant in order to have an abortion. They just don't. It's the least worst option. Oh my gosh, they just they have nowhere to go. They have no other choice. And if it's not for us on the life-affirming side, constantly finding ways to have them reach out to us and us to reach out to them, that's where I'm seeing this movement. Yes, there is a lot of uh, political maneuverings across the country, but in the end, we're all still called to meet the needs um, of of our of the least of Amen. our brothers and sisters, women Amen. in women in crisis, but also to provide excellent women's health care uh, on our end as physicians and providers. And that's what we're seeing across the nation. We are seeing and hearing from people who have turned to other means of health care that has been centered on a pro-life message, and they're finding peace, they're finding joy, they're finding love, they're finding truthful answers. You and I were just speaking recently. I have a friend who, a family member, who recently was trying to figure out what's going on with her medical issue, and physicians told her and shamed her into taking birth control, and she said, nope, no thank you, and they were pressuring her, saying, are you telling us you're refusing medical care and hormonal therapy? It's not hormonal therapy. That's birth control. And I'm hearing this message from women across the country. And when you were speaking, it reminded me of a story when I was working in the crisis pregnancy centers, because I did for about five to six years. And I remember a young woman came in, she was scheduled for an abortion on a Saturday, it was maybe a Wednesday or Thursday. And she had originally gone to Planned Parenthood for her pregnancy test, because they're sly, they, they try to pull you in for any reason whatsoever. And she goes in for her pregnancy test, and the nurse grabs her arm, while she's about to give her the pregnancy test and she squeezes really tight the moment that she tells this young woman that she's pregnant and the woman Mm. says however there are solutions for you and the woman's literally wincing the young girl who believes she's pregnant is wincing her arm her shoulders raising up toward her ear and then the woman says but there are solutions for you we can give you an abortion everything will be okay and she slowly releases the tension on the woman's arm and the whole woman's body starts to relax after the physical pain that was being held on her arm she was manipulating the young woman 
to one, think associate physical pain with the baby and relief with abortion. This was a tactic that a Planned Parenthood worker here in Southern California used, and she wanted a second opinion. She wanted a second pregnancy test. They lied to her that day, Dr. Buchowski. She was not pregnant, and they had scheduled her for an abortion on Saturday, and had she not come to the pro-life clinic, she would have spent the rest of her life believing that she had had an abortion, and she would have spent time associating pain with baby and relief with abortion. And they are so sly. They are such liars. And when you mentioned, you know, what you did about how the pro-abortion movement's telling women to take RU-486 chemical abortion pills and as they face this bloody mess and they face their child, their dead baby face-to-face to go and lie to the ER saying it's a miscarriage, it's false data. We know, we know from Europe, there's been a 500 increase in ER visits, as you said, from women taking yeah. chemical abortion with greater access. The United States is not yeah. reporting their numbers. We deserve better as women. And I know that you are doing that with Divine Mercy Care. If you're interested in mm-hmm. learning more doc- about Dr. John Buchowski and his work, you can check out divinemercycare.org. I'd like to touch for a moment on maybe an anecdotal perspective. How do does your center work to reach these women before they make this abortion choice? And what's the response of the women? Maybe you can share a story when they do have that opportunity to hear a different message. Sure. Um, so, so we are a medical practice. We, we are a full OBGYN medical practice with uh, physicians and midwives Um, And in our past, we've had many mid-levels. And so our our attempt, the best that we have to offer in our medical practice is that we are partnering with the regional pregnancy centers, and we're beginning the conversation about getting getting, uh, their clients, uh, talking to them about how can they reach out and um, take advantage of this chemical abortion or the morning after pill, which are two different processes? But remember, these are over the counter now. And so it's really a challenge. And so the way we're doing it is that we're teaching nurse practitioners, midwives, physicians, assistants, doctors, students, the, the people training that there is a better way to approach um, to approach patients in a more healthy, holistic, cooperative way. So we're literally, and we're also teaching them to come alongside pregnancy resource centers in order to um, provide a better approach, a more holistic and healing approach to all the challenges we face from relationships, the sexual revolution, Mm -hmm. and what's politically being foisted on us. Number two, um, I I believe that um, another way that our practice comes to identify um, folks earlier is that just about at every visit with our older moms who have come into the practice and maybe we have birthed one or two or three of their children or more, you know, for a decade earlier or, you know, five years earlier or 20 years earlier. We actually get them to say, listen, it's best if your daughter comes in, 
before she has a problem. A lot of Catholic moms will say, oh, John, or even Christian moms, oh, John, they're not having a problem. They really don't need to come in yet. Come well, in for what? Because Come in for an annual exam. Come in for a general checkup. And so the way we're doing this is rather than waiting for them to go to college and then go through a clinic system there or have a problem where they're having a ovarian cyst mm-hmm. or pain yep. Yep. or endometriosis, no, bring them in at the end of their high school years. We will be as gentle but as thorough and as kind as we can. Hospitable is the, is the right word. We will accompany them. We will encounter them with all the depth of what those words mean. And we will put into their heart and within a relationship way, health, wholeness, mm-hmm. holiness, and healing. Meaning we will prepare them ahead of time for what they're about to face. That seems from our end to be the most mm-hmm. practical way. We also will tell younger women who come from the high schools um, or even from the grammar schools that if there are folks in their classes, especially if they felt at home in our office, please tell your in. friends. Yes. Send yes. them to us. I agree, And we Dr. will find Tuchowski. ways to see them. And so it's one-on-one. It's yes. very conversational, Timory, just what and you do. And it's helpful because it's helping these young women. I mean, I didn't think, I never thought I'd have polycystic ovarian syndrome or Hashimoto's disease. I didn't think I'd have a struggle with fertility. And I'm so glad, you know, that I grew up knowing about NAPRO physicians and looking into the medical background uh, that when, you know, suddenly I'm married and I'm not feeling so great, I knew where to go. But a lot of these girls, like you said, that relationship of trust and wholeness about the whole picture of the young woman from sexual integrity to to health, the potential for fertility being difficult. Uh, it's very real. And I just want to throw a side tangent for those who might ask. I know some people ask, well, what can we do about the birth control in the water and the endocrine disruptors? I do know that there are filters out there that are helpful. I've heard, and we personally use the Berkey water filter. It helps to filter out quite a bit of the uh, endocrine disruptors and hormones that can be in our water. So that is one. I'll post a link to that. If you're listening to Trending with Timory. I'll be right back with Dr. John Bruchowski, who had a past of working with abortion and has had a massive pro-life conversion and he will share more in a moment you're listening to trending with timory where you can discuss what matters most to you join the conversation 888-914-9149 Joining me today on Trending is the author of the book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. Dr. John Bruchalski shared his story here before. And many years ago, he was involved in performing abortions, had a massive return to his Catholic faith and a conversion uh, into the pro-life position and does incredible pro-life work. He really is on the front line with regard to abortion and helping women as a practicing OBGYN running multiple full OBGYN clinics for women. Uh, fantastic insights on the RU486 crisis today in the culture, along with helping women. He was sharing with us before, so be sure to listen to the podcast, listen at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your episodes. Dr. Brochowski, your book came out over the last year, uh, just months after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I would be curious to hear your thoughts looking back on your past involvement with abortion. What do you think as you look out at the country that is warring from state to state over abortion laws, some becoming sanctuary states for quote-unquote 
therapy type abortion spa experiences such as my state of California and I know even yours they're trying to make in Virginia and others like Florida and Texas that have very strict uh, anti-abortion pro-life laws. What do you make of what's happening right now? Oh, what do I make of it? Um, I think once you unmoor the world and reality from um, truth and justice, everything begins to fall apart at an exponential rate, number one. Number two is, um, I think one of the deepest questions we have today is, uh, is, is really about uh, death, meaning we do everything we can to not think about it, to not deal with it. And in fact, we've, we've adopted this idea of totally wiping out suffering and wiping out the sacrifice needed uh, in one's life. We have forgotten that so many of us when you accomplish uh, a task at great strain to you, it means so much more. So you look back on your life and you realize that some of the best times were some of the toughest times. So when you have a, a world that has pushed God out and has unmoored words like mercy, justice, mm. truth, and then you add, let's get rid of suffering because we really want pleasure and we want our, um, what we want, our identity, whether it's narcissism, you know, people use narcissism, people use selfishness, people use uh, pleasure, um, that once you begin in this process, every single reality begins to fall apart. And our faith, has always challenged us with what is truth, not only in Scripture, with Pilate saying it to Christ, or maybe to himself. We talk about the reality of the Eucharist. We, we talk about the reality of what baptism means, that we are brought into the family of God forever. It goes beyond death. And that death isn't the end. We talk about it as if it's the end. It's something to be, you know, embraced without anything going forward, that we don't believe in a future. We don't. And I believe that through educa with education, medicine, government, down the line, we're left in an absolute chaotic state where we have begun to marginalize certain subsets of people. And now, because you no longer have made in the image and likeness, which right. is at the foundation what keeps us mm, equal are. and mm. equitable with who we are, well, all of a sudden, you're not talking about diversity. You're talking about somebody who may be a human life, but is not worth being called a person. Or maybe they're a person, but they just don't meet the standards for a person to be protected. And we can just look back throughout history as, you know, once again, uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about mercy led to the gas chambers. Mm 
during the 1940s, Mercy is now leading to abortion chambers today. And I think once you unmoor all of that, where do you go? Where do you find real, you know, oh, we can't use dignity anymore, human dignity and bioethical discussions. Why? What are you talking about? We have to talk about, you know, this, this fundamental human equality. And believe it or not, you can't get there in a rational way. There are some wonderful areas of religious truth that go deeper than the scientific, Mm -hmm. the music, the love, the poetry, things that we don't, the choices, the actual will, the intelligence, prayer, silence. And once again, when you have a world filled with noise, no one wants to get silent in order to listen and then we all beat each other up, polarizing, where we really should be providing questions, walking in the shoes of our brothers and sisters. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, to Marie, Leroy Carhart died, that ab- third, second and third trimester abortionist mm-hmm. uh, yes. from Kansas, but also here in Bethesda, Maryland. He and I shared patience. Mm-hmm. He and I talked on the phone. Wow. I prayed for his soul. Because, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's, it. it's not hard, but it's hard watching, not, never giving an inch to the life issue. And, it, you know, it breaks your heart to give him reports about some of his patients that transferred because they couldn't go through their abortion, so they ended up in our practice. And our practice is about 30 miles away. Mm. And yet, it's because you, you, you create a system, at, as Tepiak tried, we didn't do it perfectly, but we have almsgiving as the basis of our not-for-profit. So we're a hybrid model. We take insurance, but we also see those who don't have insurance because we didn't want to be just another free clinic. We didn't want to be another for-profit, only seeing concierge medicine, the fancy, the ones who could pay. We wanted both ends. And what you realize is, is that in the end, after you die, it's either heaven or hell. That's the only either or we face as humans. Everything else before that is both and in the sense of body and soul, woman and virgin, mother and virgin, faith and reason. It's the paradoxes of life. Mm-hmm. And I just and think faith. once you eliminate that mystery, you're done, mm-hmm. or it's it's hard to get it back. And it's spoken so profoundly by you, who saw that faith transformed everything. You know, I think so often people try to throw off the faith of their childhood, or reject the faith of a friend or family member. And at the end of the day, when that moment happens for so many people that they realize they are so desperately in need of God. And it puts everything back into alignment in a culture that is so chaotic right now. It's so chaotic. At what point will we stop saying there's got to be something more? And there is. There's God. I think that your story, your book, speaks volumes to this. Your book, Two Patients, Your Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. Uh, You are someone who has been through this, who has made the mistake and has been so blessed by the mercy of God. And you're offering that to other people. And it's a message that people need to hear. 
Yeah, it's hopeful. Yeah, sure. No, it's hopeful. Just like you do, Timory. And it's also trying to provide a question by walking in the shoes of our audience, of our, our patients, of our friends who may disagree with us, but to walk in their shoes and realize that because they were made in the image and likeness, they all carry some truth inside them. And as you listen and talk, speak and converse, you begin to formulate questions that make both parties look at themselves in a new critical way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you do. I think that's what Relevant Radio does to a nth degree. Just the conversations and your probing of issues, I am grateful uh, because, you know, I I am so clumsy and this was all shown to me. Like, like in my prayer, the mother and father showed me this. Like, I didn't come up with, oh, how did you do this? I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, this is what Praise unfolded God. in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they so. drew them. They drew you to their heart, and it's been transformative for you. I'm so thankful for the work you're doing to help our women in this country when the media, when our government does not take steps to help women. Uh, but you are doing what we are all called to, and is that and that is to meet the people before us in the culture and those many of whom who are hurting our women facing this pro-contraception and pro-abortion culture. Please pick up his book. That's Dr. John Puchalski here on Trending Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. You can also find him and his work online to support his clinic that's based in Virginia. Find him at divinemercycare.org. That's divinemercycare.org. Coming up, I'll talk about United States, former United States Marine Daniel Penny. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I have been intrigued and alarmed following the story of former United States Marine Daniel Penny. You, I'm sure, know the story, but what story do you know? It has been really interesting when I first heard about the story. I started researching it and I kept hearing different things, Uh, things that truly were slanderous when you get down to what seems to be the facts. Again, it's a case that we're going to see work its way forward. But the bottom line is this. Uh, There is a man that has been known on the subways in New York City. Uh, He's known for being a Michael Jackson impersonator. He's also known for being homeless and he's had over 42 arrests. He's punched a woman in in the face. He's had... Uh, felony charges that he pled guilty to. He even attempted to kidnap a child and pleaded guilty to that as well. He was seen dragging a child away in a bag. And how he didn't serve more than just, I think, four months for that is astounding. So this man was someone that was known on the subways there in New York City to frequent it. What happened was, from the facts that have come out, United States Marine Daniel Penny used a chokehold to subdue Jordan Neely, the assailant on the New York subway. Now, Daniel Penny, former United States Marine, was not alone. He's only 24 years old. He's in college now. And he was not alone in trying to keep this man, 
who was being very aggressive, using verbiage, making it very clear that if he didn't get what he was want, he didn't care what he had to do, he didn't care if he went to jail, and was implying, according to people who felt uncomfortable there that day, uh, that he was implying that he didn't care if he had to kill someone to get what he wanted there on the subway. So stories have swung in different directions in terms of how long uh, former United States Marine Daniel Penny held Jordan Neely, but essentially to subdue and protect other people, he held him in a chokehold. It seems to be that he was held for about three minutes. And during that time, there were other people helping. And during that time, from what we know, Jordan Neely was moving and responding a lot of the time. And then at a certain point became, you know, was no longer fighting back. Uh, people have tried to claim in the media that Jordan Neely died on the spot in the chokehold. Uh, what we do know is that uh, the assailant was not uh, considered, and I'm talking about Jordan Neely, who was being held in a chokehold. Uh, he was not uh, proclaimed dead until later when he was at the hospital. He was not proclaimed dead or declared dead on the scene. And that's very important when we talk about when a person's pronounced dead because the media is saying otherwise. Uh, and that's very important that we're kind of looking at these facts in the conversation. It's been interesting to see millions of dollars have been raised uh, for the legal trial of United States Marine Daniel Penny, who people are calling a good Samaritan, coming out and trying to help uh, people in need also protecting himself as well. And what happened was what seemed to be, a, even though there were riots and protests over this, you know, things seemed to be proceeding fine. And then about a week ago, he was told on Thursday night uh, that he needed to turn himself in. Daniel Penny turned himself in, uh, said that he he does not believe he's not guilty, but he's willing to comply. So he's out on bail now. But this whole story has been significant. Uh, we're going to see how this plays out in the courts in the months to come. But I do have some key thoughts, especially when it comes to protection in our culture. I think that we live in such a strong cancel culture that even when we have very serious stories such as these, where United States Marine helps to subdue a very hostile, dangerous man on a subway to protect others and holds him in a chokehold and the man later dies, we are quick to criticize someone who has stepped forward to help protect. And I'm not justifying in any way the death of Jordan Neely, nor am I saying that that was Daniel Penny's intention. His intention was to protect. Could he have potentially handled it different ways? Sure. Did Jordan Neely have to die? No. But also, if if he did only, if Daniel Penny only held Jordan Neely for three minutes in a chokehold, that's a pretty reasonable time with regard to trying to keep someone in a position to subdue them to no longer be a threat. Uh, it's interesting to see the media has been outright slanderous over this entire topic. I was talking to one of my producers, John Hannity, behind the scenes the other day, and he said this, and it really stood out to me. He said, anarchy reigns if we continue to crucify heroism. Anarchy reigns if we continue to crucify heroism. And I thought that was so significant because I think the media's response in for us, some of our misinformation that we've shared as well, based on what we've seen in the media, is what subdues and keeps men from protecting in our culture. And I've talked to many of my peer set men, what they thought about, you know, situations such as these. Men today are terrified to protect someone. 
to not just protect others and themselves, but even to protect their families because of the ramifications that men are are facing today. It's a witch hunt for men who uh, act in a way that can protect and sometimes, yes, do harm in the process. You know, the goal should never be to kill someone. The goal should always be to protect. And I think there's a real big problem with how the media is spreading misinformation about a former United States Marine who is trying to protect people on the subway against a man, a homeless man who has mental health issues, has faced 42 arrests, has pleaded guilty to one felony, and has pleaded guilty to attempted child kidnapping and was seen dragging a child in a bag. I mean, this is just insane that we're even having this conversation. But my fear, my true fear is that men will stop protecting in a culture where when they do, they are punished. Now, if someone does something wrong, yes, let's allow the legal system to play that out and take care of it. However, do we want men to do nothing? And I think that's part of the question I have here. And I know you're going to receive a lot of flack for this whole topic. That's fine. But I think at the heart of the question is this, do we want men to do nothing when it comes to protecting us and others? That's the question at hand. Yes, we mourn and are sorry to hear of the loss of Jordan Neely in this instance, in the death of this man. But the concern here is if as a civilization in the United States, we no longer allow or encourage or support men when they step forward and put their own lives on the line to protect others. I've talked to many men, many who have said, you know, I wouldn't step forward to try and uh, necessarily protect others, but I would protect my family. And I would do what I could to make sure my family was protected so that in instances like this, you know, the the ramifications are different. You know, the punishment, uh, there's so much calculation today before I think a dangerous situation, instead of saying, stepping forward and saying, hey, no, stop. No, today's someone's punished for raising their voice. Someone's punished for standing up and facing someone and even of a different race. And that's what's kind of scary about this is that this whole racism conversation is being brought into the mix. And I really do think at the end of the day, this is a conversation about what we want men to do, whether we want to encourage and ask for men to protect in our culture or whether we want to slander men who do. And again, not expect perfection. And I know someone's going to say, well, this man died in the process. That's horrible. That shouldn't have happened. But what the conversation about is today, it is about protection and it's about not expecting perfectionism when someone is trying to help protect other people. Could it have been done differently? Sure, but should we crucify someone in the instance? And again, my producer, one of my producers, John Hannity, working behind the scenes, I thought the words were so keen that anarchy reigns if we continue to crucify heroism in our culture today. And men are really suffering. We've talked a lot about this here on Trending, and I think it's because they're told to not speak up, to not say anything, to not do anything, to the point where men are so apathetic because they're told not to do something that is fundamental and God-given, and that is to protect to lead and provide in the culture. And so those are just some thoughts to ponder. I've heard a lot from people on social media. And again, this whole misinformation is a part of this wider conversation today. I've heard from running men who have given input on the topic as well, who said, I would never ride 
a subway. I can think of two people I would talk to this last week. Uh, my husband and one of my other producers, Jim Schaefer here, said I wouldn't even be riding the subway to begin with because I know myself essentially. And I wouldn't want to put myself in that situation where there were dangerous individuals who were not uh, maybe going to have the best interest in of my family and mine. So there are places where I don't put myself, why? Not because I don't want to protect, but because I don't want to face the culture that we live in today that would punish me for protecting. And so I'm hearing from a lot of men who say, I will not go places today. I will not put myself in situations because it could be detrimental to me and my family for doing the right thing. And I was talking to someone, someone wrote into me the other day, George was saying, you know, I wouldn't place my family in this sort of setting because it would leave them at risk of me uh, having to protect them and me facing legal consequences and a cancel culture that could be so damaging that it could impact my ability to provide. And so I thought this was interesting perspective. He also was sharing that it's a matter of avoiding the near occasion. Not that you would be entering into an occasion of sin, but it would be entering into an occasion in the culture today where it could harm your family, where it could harm you. And I thought that was really interesting. He said avoiding the near occasion of people's idiocy that could put you in a situation that could be harmful for you and those entrusted to you. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Love to hear your thoughts on the whole Daniel Penning situation. Feel free to reach out on social media and share your thoughts or head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can share this episode as well as uh, write me an email. I would like to hear uh, where your mindset is with this topic. You're listening to Trending with Timory and it's Friday and something very special about the liturgical calendar is that on Fridays we're called to unite ourselves to the crucifixion of our Lord, to ponder uh, his cross, his suffering, his passion. And one of the ways that the church has always historically done that is by entering into little penances on Fridays. I've shared over the last week that was celebrating the feast day of Our Lady of Fatima on May 13th, how struck I was by reading the first memoir of Sister Lucia for the first time, where she writes in particular about St. Jacinta, the younger of the three visionaries, who was very, very young as these three young children were first seeing the apparitions of Our Lady. In fact, if you just look at the ages of the three, when the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima began, Sister Lucia was 10, Francisco was 9, and Jacinta was 7. These three young children answered the call of Our Lady to pray and fast and make sacrifices for souls. And it's a message I think we need to hear again in the 21st century. When I think we struggle as Catholics to fast, we struggle as Catholics uh, to really take on those penances in a culture where we're so comfortable. Yet in reading these stories, there was one story that Sister Lucia uh, told about how uh, Sister Lucia was a shepherdess. She was in charge of her family's flock. And Francesco and Jacinta, because they love Sister Little Lucia so much, they wanted also to uh, take on the responsibility, even though they were too young, of being the shepherds for their family's flock. And so at a very, very young age, uh, the parents agreed. And so the two sets would 
come together and bring their flocks together and take them out to pasture. And there's a story about them taking the sheep out to a very far pasture. Some family friends had said that they could go and graze on the grass. And so the parents instructed the three young children to go out. And this was after the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima had already begun. And they had already started making sacrifices, skipping eating their lunch, sharing their lunches with homeless uh, and impoverished individuals. And there's one day where they feed even their lunches to the sheep because they were trying to make a sacrifice and offer it for souls. And they're just young. They're 10, 9, and 7. And there's another story where they're out pasturing this flock far away that their parents, as I mentioned, had asked them to go out to. And they end up giving away their lunches on the way. And at a certain point, they realize they're so thirsty. They at least need some water. It's squelching. The sun is beating down upon them. And Sister Lucia ends up going to a house that she sees far off in the distance and just begs for some water. Can we please have some water? And she gets the water from the person who lived at the home and goes back to Francisco and Jacinta. She says, here, drink. And they say, no, we won't drink. We won't drink. We need to sacrifice for the salvation of souls. And so all three little children, they're gone all day. They've already given up their lunches and now they're refusing even to drink their water. They give the water then to the sheep who are all so hot and they continue to do their work in the hot, beating sun. And they're 10, 9, and 7. It's so inspiring, I think, for us to look at this call to sacrifice, the tradition of the church on Fridays, to unite our suffering and sacrifice for the salvation of souls in union with Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to ponder how you might implement sacrifices, abstinences, and penances into your life beyond those seasons that we already have prescribed, such as Lent, for family members of yours, maybe people you encounter. It could be a matter of abstaining, as the church has called and encouraged us to, from meat on Fridays. The bishops here in the United States still ask us to keep the tradition of the church in not eating meat on Fridays all year long, and that we offer this for an end to abortion in the United States. It could be also adding additional penances and small sacrifices. Maybe it's not putting salt on your food. If you love salt or want more salt, it's a small sacrifice. Maybe it's not eating dessert. Maybe it's drinking only water if you drink other things. Maybe it's going to Mass an additional day of the week, Wednesday or Friday, which have been prescribed by the church for those days of penance, going to adoration for an hour. Maybe it's waiting until noon to have your first meal for the day or cutting off your meal after lunch for the day. There are things that we can do to enter into the call of Our Lady of Fatima and to be inspired by the example of these three young visionaries Lucia, Francisco, and Jacinta, 10, 9, and 7 were their ages, and they were willing to answer the call of Our Lady to make sacrifices for the salvation of souls. And we, too, are called to do the same. But I think we're too comfortable. And so I encourage you to ponder, how can you step out of your own comfort and start enduring more fasting, more abstinences, offering it for the souls of your loved ones, for the souls in purgatory? You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. It's been a great week with you. I hope you'll join me for our weekly happy hour on Monday. And until then, be sure to catch the podcast at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you listen to your podcast. We're there and just download the episode, grab the link and share it with a friend who could benefit from this.